0: Are using I am giving you a copy that is an updated wording from Founders Ministries, a ministry within the SBC. Um, and they have just sort of taken the, the confession and updated the wording. Uh, this afternoon I want to do a, the briefest overview of chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. The reason that we need a mediator, number one, is the vast difference between the Creator and we, the creatures. And then secondly, to magnify that distance even more, is our sin and our fallenness, which causes a separation between us and our God that is um, unbridgeable, except that God has taken the initiative to come to us in the mediator and bring God and man together. Last time we uh, talked through this, which was before Christmas, uh, I think around Thanksgiving time or before, we talked about the um, chapter on the covenant, the covenant of God's grace. And the covenant of grace is that God, essentially, God will do for us what we cannot do, what we have failed to do for ourselves. Whereas the covenant of works said, do this and live, the covenant of grace... In the covenant of grace, Christ says, I have done it for you. It is finished. Now you can live by my obedience. So Christ fulfills righteousness before God, the covenant of works as it were, and earns for his people on their behalf a righteousness and a a, um, uh, fellowship with the righteous one, God, uh, in heaven. The covenant of works, then, is mediated to us through Adam, our first father, the head of our human race. The covenant of grace is mediated to us through the new Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. So we're going to go through this uh, description now of the work of Christ the mediator. In the first paragraph, In fact, the first paragraph I've found of most of the chapters in the Confession is a kind of summary paragraph. And then from there, it kind of goes backwards and begins to talk from the beginning about the mediatory work of Christ. But here's the summary paragraph, and we'll spend most of our time here. God was pleased in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them, to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose him to be prophet, priest, and king, and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by Him. So the paragraph begins by telling us that God chose His Son to be the mediator between God and humanity, to be the last Adam, to be the one to represent a new humanity, a new people that are in communion with God. And notice also that the paragraph says that God did this according to the covenant made between them. That's talking about between the Father and God the Son. This is not the covenant of grace per se, but a kind of covenant that stands behind that, a kind of agreement within the Godhead, even before time, as it were, to provide salvation for mankind. Sometimes this covenant between the Father and the Son is called the covenant of redemption, or sometimes it's called the covenant of eternity. There's a fancy Latin phrase used to describe it, that it is called the pactum salutis, the pact of salvation or the salvation covenant. This is the agreement between among the Godhead, not between God and men like the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, but among the Godhead to provide salvation, to make salvation a reality for um, a people. This uh, covenant of redemption among the Godhead is such that the Father... Um, provides the way of salvation. The Son is that way of salvation, and the Spirit makes that way of salvation um, applicable, or He applies that salvation to the hearts and the lives of His people. So again, this this is a work of God Himself, this covenant of redemption, this plan in the mind of God to bring salvation to a people. You can see this in several places in the Scripture. Um, I'm not going to take a long time on them, but let me just uh read to you a couple. First from Psalm 2, and I don't have it, so I think it's on the screen uh, there. <clears throat> Psalm 2, it's described as God's decree. This is His decree before time, the decree between the Father and the Son, as it were. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, said to me, And now you can see who's speaking because he says, God says to this person, you are my son. So the father is speaking to the son saying, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So, And and you will break them in pieces with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And later on it goes on to say that all who trust in the son will be blessed. So those who reject the Son will be destroyed, and those who receive and worship the Son will be blessed. This is the agreement, as it were, the decree of God the Father even before um, the world began. The Bible describes um, this similar kind of thing in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 11 and 12. Here, speaking of the Son of God, the Messiah, he says, "...out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." That's the substitutionary death of Messiah. And now look, verse 12, "...therefore, because he's been faithful to obey me," the Father says, "...because the Son has been faithful to do everything that the Father wants," including suffering on behalf of his people. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide his spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So here, the blessing of having a people that he blesses is the reward of the Son. Having that people and blessing that people, that's the outcome of the son's perfect obedience if the son does everything that he agreed to with the father perfect obedience even to the point of death then he will receive his inheritance which is namely a people for himself a kingdom to rule over this is this is sort of getting at i think the mind of god in that that lies behind and that's what this um <clears throat> this part of the confession is getting at according to the covenant made between the Godhead. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 talks about the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So, before the beginning of time, the Father enters into this sort of promissory agreement that He will provide eternal life to those whom He gives to the Son. Conditioned upon the son's perfect obedience in his humanity to the Father, so um, this is the covenant of redemption now, in the covenant of redemption, God chose Christ to be a mediator for us amen the the one who goes between us and 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 every hope that we have, every hope that we have as Christians to be in any kind of communion with God, every hope of it goes through his son, the mediator. This is our only means of approaching a thrice holy God. This is why Christianity, the the Christian gospel, is a Christ-exalting gospel in every way. And God chose him as mediator in these three ways, to be our prophet, priest, and king. Notice according to the, um, the confession. Most of you have heard that. Maybe you've heard it your whole life. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Those aren't just three sort of random titles picked out because you know he is those things, as if he's many things. But we sort of picked these three. These are the three offices of mediation within the Old Testament um, covenantal framework. Prophets, priests, and kings were the were those who um, mediated between God and men. And Christ is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. Um, the Westminster Confession, the Baptist Confession that follows it says this. Question 28. I don't have it on the screen, but uh, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation. Question 29. How does Christ execute the office of priest? Answer, Christ executes the office of the priest in once offering up of Himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. And then the third question, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. He is for us, our prophet, priest, and king, the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. This first paragraph also says that God chose him in several other respects to be head and savior of the church. This is by virtue of his standing in their stead. Chose him to be the heir of all things. This is by virtue of His perfect human obedience on our behalf. He now inherits the whole world that God planned for humanity, that we lost, as it were, in our sin. This comes to be Christ's. And then also He is appointed as judge of the world by virtue of His being the only one who is worthy to judge uh, sinful human beings. And then there are two statements in this first paragraph about the people for whom Christ stands as mediator, the people for whom he stands as mediator, um, they are people described this way. Number one, from all eternity it says, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring." Now is that a biblical thing? Are we given to God to Christ from all eternity? Well here's the way Ephesians chapter one verse four says it: He chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So the Bible itself is giving us a glimpse into that kind of eternal pact between God to give a certain people to His Son and expressing it in the idea that God, in a sense, chose us even before we existed, as it were, before the foundation of the world. So the, the confession describes us that way. And then secondly, it says not only does it describe us from the perspective of eternity, but from the perspective of time, it said these people, the ones who are given to Christ by the Father to be His offspring, these people in time would be redeemed. That means Jesus would what? Would die for them. They would be redeemed. They would be called. They were called to Christ they would be justified, sanctified, and glorified in Him. You can kind of see the order of salvation here. Christ provides for those people who are given to Him by God. Christ provides for them redemption. Then He calls them effectively to Himself. Then He declares them to be righteous on the basis of their faith. Then He sanctifies them, and then He glorifies them ultimately. And you have noticed... No doubt that in the confession, there is this language of particularity. There is a certain people that God has given to His Son. Uh, Again, this is, I say, the language of particularity. God promised not just to give His Son people, but to give Him a people, a particular set of persons. Those persons whom He gives to the Son are the ones who would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. And I think what the confession is trying to do there is to reflect the language of passages like Romans chapter 8, right? What does Romans chapter 8 say? We know, verse 28, that all things, this is the one we memorize, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That is, to those who are called according to his purpose. What is the purpose of God? those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he called and those whom he called he justified and those whom he justified he also glorified right so there's a people that god foreknows those he justifies those he glorifies those he calls he justifies he glorifies so the Confession is trying to capture that in this kind of language. And uh, it is the language of what we call particular redemption. Some people refer to this as the L in Lip," if you're familiar with that little acrostic, limited atonement. Probably not the best terminology ever, but the idea is that his death was effective, that it was a full atonement. That's the language I like to use. It was full. It was a true atonement for those people. For what people? For the people that God gave to his son, whom he also called, and justified, and eventually will glorify. That atonement was full and complete. It was purposeful. It was particular. And that's why people who have believed this in history, the Baptists who believe this, were called particular Baptists. Um, This... Um, kind of language reflects that Christ fully paid for the sins of His people. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. The people say about the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, they sang a song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation, people and nation. What does it mean to ransom somebody? It means to what? To buy them out. To pay a price. You pay for that person. And if you pay for that person, you should what? You should get that person. If you go in the store and you buy a product, you expect to take it home. It's yours. You paid for it. Um, don't act like I didn't pay for that. I paid for that. That's mine. And that's what Christ, the Bible says, has done for His people. Amen? Christ has paid for us. It's an amazing thing. There was a price for you. A dear price and his son paid it every last drop for every sin for every sin that you've ever committed the lord jesus suffered for that so that you could be reconciled to god now that then if that's true then that there are implications of that right if christ literally died for our sins if he paid the price that we owe to god for rebellion against him If he bore the curse for our sins, if Christ actually bore the curse for my sins, then how can I ever bear that curse, right? If the curse is taken away, how can it ever come back? If Christ actually paid for the sins... Now hear me. If Christ actually paid for the sins of each and every individual on the face of the planet then how could any individual on the planet be ever forced to pay for their sins again? Will a just God cause that sin to be paid for twice? Because I think sometimes people do talk this way, and it's not necessarily always wrong-headed, but it certainly can be. People say Christ died for the sin of every person. Well, Christ died for the sins of the world, we are supposed to say that, but what do we mean? We don't mean necessarily that he paid the full and complete price for the sin of every single individual in the world. Else no one would go to what? No one would go to hell. There would be no payment left to make. It's not as if God says, "Okay, you paid for their sin, but I'm going to make them pay again." No, God is not unjust. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, those for whom Christ died. In other words, a universal atonement. If, if we say that Christ died for every single individual in the entire world, then if we're going to say that, that implies either a universal salvation where everyone will be saved because their sins are paid for, or we're going to have to modify our idea that Christ actually paid for their sins. The idea of substitutionary atonement, right? So, in other words, historically, one of the implications of believing in substitutionary atonement was the idea that Christ's death was for a particular people, that he really and truly did pay completely for their sins. And that helps us to understand statements like 1 John two two, when it says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Well, what do we mean by that? It doesn't, we, when I, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that when he says for the sins of the whole world, he doesn't mean, he's not exhaustive of every single individual, that Christ was the propitiation for the sins of every single individual on the planet. Because if Propit- follow the link thinking here. If propitiation means satisfying the what? You know what propitiation is? Satisfying the wrath of God. If propitiation is satisfying the wrath of God, and if Christ being the propitiation for the sins of the whole world means that he's the propitiation for the sins of every single individual then we, how could we also say that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all who suppress the truth and unrighteousness? There's no wrath left because Christ propitiated God's wrath for every single individual if that's what it means to say that he's the propitiation for the sins of the world. Are you following? Is that kind of making sense? Okay, maybe, maybe not. Um, so rather, I think what it's getting at is this, the idea is that the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, not in terms of every single individual, but He he takes away the sins of the the whole world, the globe, all the way around the world. Not just the Jews, not just the immediate surrounding area, but people from every tribe and nation and language on, on the face of the earth. All of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those who are given by the Father to the Son from eternity to pass to be His, for those for whom He made redemption, and He calls and He justifies and He glorifies. In other words, anything else is in some way a watering down of the idea that Christ died for our sins, that He literally took our place. He did fully and completely take the place of his people all across the globe. But while his people are a global people, they are a particular people. So he says in John chapter 10 that he lays down his life for his, what? Well, where? For his sheep. He says in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for Now here's the good news from all of it. The implications are staggering because if Christ paid for our sins, if you are, if you're His, then He paid for your sins and He paid for them in full. You will absolutely and never, never be accountable in, in the sense of eternally punishable by God for any of your sins, past, present, or future. Christ took them all. You are now completely delivered. There is no hope. I mean, there is no... This is the wrong way to say it. There is no threat of your being condemned because God is just. Your, 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 Your debt has been completely wiped out. It's done. It's paid for. He will never charge you with debt because the His Son paid the debt. He will never belittle the payment that his son made. It is full and completely satisfying of God the Father. And it's just so sweet and encouraging for those who are truly the people of God. There is a deliverance, a comfort, a a, a liberty in that that is, that is beyond compare. The price is paid in full. Now, that's the first paragraph. I said we'd spend most of the time on that. So let's go kind of a little more quickly through the other paragraphs. Paragraph number two. After that introductory or summary paragraph about Christ the Mediator, we now kind of go back in time to before the beginning. Paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance, and equal with God. In other words, we're starting off with Christ's absolute deity, right? He is completely God. Echoing the language of Hebrews chapter 1 here. This is his Godness. Then it also says, He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. If you remember the Nicene Creed um, that we studied, this is sort of following the Nicene Creed. In fact, what comes next does as well. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. So now we're not talking about Christ's deity, we're talking about his what? His humanity. Thank you. Good job, job, class. His humanity, yeah. And uh, we won't take time to argue for these. We believe these, right? He is fully God, fully man. Then it says, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. This is just the language of the Bible itself. Thus he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the Scriptures. This is Christ born according to the flesh. And then it describes what is sometimes called the hypostatic union. I should have that on the screen, but most of you are familiar by now. Hypostatic. In other words, we're talking about two natures in one person. So we talk about the Trinity as three um, persons in one essence or in one in essence. They're one God. But now when we talk about Christ, we're talking about two natures in one person. And here's the way the confession says it. two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other, so a kind of godness that became man uh, but being converted from God into man, or by mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. It's not that Jesus is a third thing, We're talking about two perfect, complete, distinct, yet inseparable natures in one person. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. And again, the the confession here is just reflecting those orthodox, early confessions of the church and the Apostles' Creed, especially in the Nicene Creed and and so forth. The third paragraph now tells us about how Christ was appointed to the position of mediator, prophet, priest, and king, by the Father. Paragraph three, the Lord Jesus, in his human nature, united in this way to the divine nature in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. This reflects the language of Isaiah. And He had in Himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the Father was pleased to make all fullness dwell in Him, so that being holy, harmless, undefiled, this is all language right in the Scripture, and full of grace and truth, He was thoroughly qualified to carry out the office of mediator and guarantor. This is That is, that He is not only the mediator of the covenant, but he is the guarantor of that covenant. He did not take this office upon himself. This, of course, reflects the language of Hebrews. But he was called to it by his Father, who put all power and judgment in his hand and commanded him to carry them out. This is the Father choosing his Son to be the mediator of mankind. Paragraph 4. The Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office. So here you can see the the covenant of redemption, the Father's choosing, the Son's willingly undertaking this. Okay. The Son, excuse me, the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office to discharge it. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. This is what we sometimes call Christ's active obedience. His active obedience. That is, his perfect obedience to God all of his life. Then it says, he also experienced the punishment that we deserved and that we should have endured and suffered. And that's sometimes what we call Christ's passive obedience. That is, his obedience in his passion or in his death. In one sense... Of course, even his death is part of his active obedience because this is the pinnacle of his act, his whole lifetime of obedience to God. He obeyed the Father even to the point of, to the point of death, even death on the cross. But on the, in another sense, it was his punishment for breaking the law, which he never did, but for our breaking the law. So he both keeps the law on our behalf, that's his active obedience, and then He suffers the curse for lawbreaking on our behalf. That's His passive obedience. And the Confession highlights both of these. It says in the middle of the paragraph, He was made sin and a curse for us. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in His soul and extremely painful sufferings in His body. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death, yet His body did not decay. This is in keeping with the Scripture. And on the third day, He arose from the dead with the same body in which He suffered. In this body, He also ascended into heaven. Notice it's saying that our Savior is not, this is not a different person now who's resurrected from the one who died or a different body. It's one and the self, same person, same body, resurrected, made new, but ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father, interceding. He will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. This is just the basic facts of the gospel. Christ came, He died, He was buried, He rose again. We affirm and believe these about the Messiah, about the, the uh, mediator. Paragraph five. The next paragraph describes some of the effects of Christ's death and resurrection that He procured for us. Take a look at what, have, what are the effects of Christ's death for us. The Lord Jesus has, here's the first one, fully satisfied the justice of God. We said earlier there's a theological word that describes that. Anybody remember what it was? Start with the P? Propitiation, right. So that's propitiation. He's propitiated God for his people. And then it says, secondly, he has obtained reconciliation. There's another theological benefit that Christ has obtained by his crucifixion. He's reconciled us to God by removing the curse that separated us from God. And he has purchased, here's the third one, an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of God for all those given to him by the Father. So they have now been given an inheritance, an everlasting life in the presence of God. He has accomplished all these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal Spirit. The next paragraph, paragraph 6, talks about the, what sometimes called proleptic effects or the effects of Christ's death that spilled over backwards or that were foreshadowed in and through the Old Testament sacrifices and types and how they benefited Those who lived before Christ's death benefited from the death of Christ. Paragraph 6. The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed Him and pointed to Him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This, of course, captures the theology that's spelled out for us in Romans chapter 3. Here's the way Paul says it to the Roman church. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We should just stop there and I should just make the comment. When he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? that's true, Uh, every single person, Um, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Here you can see that sometimes when we're talking about all being justified, we don't mean each and every person in the entire universe is going to be justified. We mean that... All who are under consideration here, who are being described here, who are, who are all sinners, um, who, who look to Christ, they will be justified. Anyway, that's kind of beside the point. Verse 25. Christ is the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. What sins? The sins that were before the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ passed over those in light of the sacrifice of His Son that would be for those people as well as for all who would come after Him who would believe in Him. They believed looking forward and received the blessing of that um, redemption. So the Gospel was revealed, according to this paragraph, in promises, like the one in the garden. God will give the seed of the woman. Types, like conquering King David, ruling over God's enemies. And sacrifices, like the sin offering, where they confess their sins and the Lamb took their place. This was revealed; These were to reveal Christ. He was revealed as the seed of the woman and as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So this is about what comes before the sacrifice of Christ. Then paragraph 7 pushing to a close here paragraph 7 in his work of mediation christ acts according to both natures that is according to his divine nature and according to his human nature in his work of mediation he acts according to both natures yet uh, excuse me by each nature doing what is appropriate to itself there are certain things that are appropriate in keeping with his nature as God, certain things that are in keeping with his nature as man. So for, so, for example, his obedience to the Father is done not predominantly as the Son of God or as the second person of deity, but as the perfect man, the second Adam. So these are done according to... um Let's see, where is it now? He doing what is appropriate to itself. Even so, it says, because of the unity of the one person, that which is appropriate to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature. And I'll just give you a, a couple of examples, or one example, I guess, primarily. Um, the Confession references a couple of passages. 1 John 3.13 which says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's the same person. You cannot divide his person. And and it actually talks about God dying for us in Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention, Paul says to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves, he says, and to the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So let me ask you: Does God have blood? Well, not in his not in his in his deity, in his God nature, but in his human nature. Of course, He was made just like we are. So it speaks of the person of Christ, eh, referring to Him as God, which He is, because of the indivisibility of His nature. In other words, we can never take Jesus and divide Him up. We can't say, well. You know, this is, this is his humanity, this is his deity. They're always and together forever and always distinct. Um, that brings us to paragraph 8. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectively applies and imparts it. He intercedes for them, unites them to himself by his Spirit, and reveals to them and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation he persuades them to believe and obey and governs their hearts by his word and spirit he overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance all these things are by the free an absolute grace apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. In other words, salvation from beginning to end is, uh, to use the words of Spurgeon's, uh, biography or autobiography, I guess, all of grace. It's all of grace. And uh, it is owing not to us from beginning to end. His work is a work of unexplainable kindness. And there's no human explanation for it. And that really is the way you have to live. leave the gospel. It is a gospel that is beyond human explanation. There's no human reason why any one of us should be saved but by the grace, the sheer mercies of God. And it's not because... Uh, I, I'm frankly glad... In, I I am glad that it is not because of anything in us because there would be no one saved if that were the case. For we are all that corrupt. And uh, if I've learned one thing in the course of my life, it is that in me, that is in my flesh, there is no good thing. But there is something good in Him. And because of that, we have hope. Amen? last two paragraphs. Number nine, this office of mediator between God and humanity is appropriate for Christ alone who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. This office may not be transferred from Him to anyone else, either in whole or in part. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, you know this passage, there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. That's such an important passage. So this is an attack on those who would require that you go through a an earthly priestly mediator in order to be have access to God or to go through the Virgin Mary or through the saints of the church in order to have access to God the Father. It is only the one who atones for sin who can mediate for. Sinners, those two things are together all through the Bible. First Corinthians, I mean, um, Isaiah chapter 53. Um, Therefore, God says about his son, I will divide him a portion with the many, or it could even be translated, I will divide him the many as his portion, and he shall divide his foil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's the one who makes atonement who also makes intercession. And any intercessory person that we might look to, humanly speaking, is in in some way or another a detraction from the atonement, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So this confession leaves no room for any earthly mediator other than the one man, Christ Jesus. He gets all the glory. And rightfully so. And then I love the way the confession ends. The author's Uh, of our Baptist Confession, really just added this real experiential application um, to the end of it, this 10th paragraph. The number and character of these offices is essential. Because we are ignorant, we need His prophetic office. Because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need His priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable and because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God and so that we can uh, utterly unable to return to God and so that we can be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies we need his kingly office to convince subdue draw sustain deliver and per- preserve us for his heavenly kingdom amen and amen And friends, it's like the great cry of the ages rings out throughout heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. Who can stand for us before the Holy One of the universe? Who can represent us and yet be worthy to stand before the Almighty? And the search is made from one end of heaven to the other, and there is not found any among us who is worthy until at last one is brought forward who will stand as the mediator between God and men. That one who says, I am willing with all that that's going to mean for Him. And the one about whom the Father says, I am well pleased. And that's the Gospel. The Gospel is about... It's the Gospel of Christ the mediator. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, the great High Priest, whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads me. Glory to Him and to Him alone.